0: All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on the staff, and especially good morning to those of you watching online after service we are going to do a Q&A thing, kind of like we did last week, and so you can text that number that will be up on the screen, and after service Luke will uh, pepper me live with some questions about the sermon. Um, not everything is fair game, so if you have questions that are just random, you can just email me, but there's questions about the sermon, so anything that's clear and needs clarifying, unclear needs clarifying can do that, so thanks for tuning in. Um, we're in the middle of this uh, book of John, right in the middle, maybe more like right at the very beginning of this sermon series. To the book of John. And one of the things I like about preaching a book is you kind of, this is true in a variety of places in our life, is you make one decision that just bears fruit for a while. And having to decide what to preach every four weeks is just frankly annoying to me. And so picking John, you're like, great, one decision, we're good to go. We'll be in John for a while, so it's pretty predictable. And uh, that's kind of where we'll be going. But I've, um, I'm pretty excited about opening this text. Um, this morning, I was... Um, taking a shower, which I'm prone to do um, in the mornings. And it was going pretty well, but then afterwards, I, we had this like shelf thing. There's like three levels to it where you like put stuff. You may have these in your showers. But afterwards, I bent over to time my shoe, getting dressed, and there's these two like Godzilla-sized spiders. Um, I don't think they're wolf spiders. I think they're very dangerous. At least that's what my body thought, because I went... But right underneath there, underneath the shelf, otherwise a great shower was ruined by these... Invaders And I just thought, like, what type of, like, demonically motivated reason would these things have to be in the shower, under the shelf, hiding, just ready to spring out right when you're tying your shoes? And it just seemed very purposeful, and I felt attacked by these spiders. But I was thinking, like, but the reason that they go down there, right, is because they are avoiding the light. Because for them, coming into the light means destruction. For them, coming into the light means I'm going to kill them, which is not the case because I saw them, and then they're still there. So they... (laughs) But the reason that they were down there was they're hiding from the light. And, and I think that this, this idea, uh, you know, the spiders this morning taught me about the human psychological sinful condition, which is that just like the spiders, we are a people who are prone to avoiding the light because the light means exposure, the light means risk, the light means illusion of reality shattered. And this is something that the Bible from the beginning to end bears witness to is that humans are prone to being light avoiders. And it's not even that the Bible is the only thing that said that, it's really only our current modern cultural situation that has this really high view of the human psyche that we are just a people who are kind of like, if we see light, we like reality. But actually Plato, way before the New Testament, was recognizing this reality that humans were light avoiders and they will resist the light with violence and this is some of what i think john is getting at here in these first couple of texts is that there's a sense in which the light is this is especially true in arizona you know we're professional light avoiders you know you see shade and you like instinctively walk towards it this happened i went to uh, st louis for class the other week and someone was in my car not the other week the other long months ago before coronavirus stuff <laughs> you know back in the beforehand times but i went to st louis and i was had a group of people in my car and i went to park and i parked like five rows away from the entrance underneath the tree and there like, what is wrong with you? Why are you, I'm like, oh, it's just instinct. You just find the shade. That's like an Arizonan, it's like in my blood. I can't not find the shade with my car. But we're light avoiders. That's Arizonans are great at it, but morally, spiritually, this is true for our hearts as well. And that's part of what we're going to see in this text is that there's a sense in which God gives light to everybody, but there's a sense in which being given light is not enough. There's something else that has to happen. There has to be a transformation of becoming children of God. And so my big idea that I want to hit out this morning is that Jesus gives inclusive light. He gives it to everyone, but he also gives exclusive rights, things that he does not give to everyone. And so there's a sense in which Christ is absolutely inclusive in the way that he gives light, and there's a sense in which he's fairly exclusive, that there are certain people that he does not give certain things. And so we're going to talk about that here. So let me pray, and then I'll jump into this text, and we'll we will walk through it. So let's pray together. Father, help me be clear. I pray that your spirit moves in power. I pray that you will um, awaken hearts to reality. I pray that we would see the ways in which we're light avoiders and that we would repent and believe and trust in you and become your children and rest in that reality. In the name of your son, I pray, Amen, amen. So John, this beginning part, John 1, especially verses 1 through 18, is like some of the most finely crafted uh, literature that you can find. I was trying to explain this to someone, that it's actually the most simple Greek you can find from antiquity, that it's... The word economy is magnificent. The structure is absolutely fantastic. I was trying to say, like, John is like the Steve Jobs of Greek theological writing design. Like, there's, there's, no, there's no waste. It's clear. It's accessible. That when you went, if you went to college and took a Greek 101 class, you would read John 1, 1 through 18. That's the first thing that you read. And so it's like this magnificent scholar who's taking absolutely complex ideas and making them bottom shelf accessible to Everyone. Other books in the Bible are not like that. For example, the book of Hebrews is some of the most complicated Greek you could find anywhere. But this is very thoughtful. And Luke talked about this a couple of weeks ago about how this reality that John's writing this, like probably well into his 80s, he's been sitting on it for like 50 years. And here he's penning this most thoughtfully crafted, produced, clear, accessible Uh, affirming and confronting document. But one of the things that's really confusing is if you look in your Bible, John 1 verses 1 through 5 is about Jesus. John 1 verses 9 through 18 is about Jesus. But there's this blip of John 1 verses 6 through 8 that's about John the witness or John the baptizer. And there's a piece that you're like, why is this sweet paragraph about Jesus interrupted by this weirdo guy who eats locusts? What's his deal? Why is it in there? And so if you read the commentaries, if you read the scholars, there's a tremendous amount of argument about why is this random three sentences about John the Baptist here? Because he comes up later in the book, but there's like this, it feels invasive, it feels out of place on a first read. And what a lot of the scholars actually say is that John wrote the book and at the end he thought, you know, I'm going to add in that last thing at the beginning of the John chapter 1, and that just feels totally dumb to me because John's so thoughtful that you think he's like, oops, I forgot, and added in the margins after the words. so I don't buy that at all. But what I actually think is going on here is much more, comp- not complicated, but more, much more beautiful than that and to do so I just want you to think with me for a second you know I I shared this with someone earlier this week and I said do you think that was interesting and they're like eh, nope but I'm gonna do it anyway so so you can bear along with me but imagine with me so I'm gonna talk about Plato's allegory of the cave so in book seven of Plato's Republic he talked about this allegory of the cave in which he's talking about the human condition and the relationship to light but the big idea is this that there are people who from birth are chained up in the dark in a cave facing a wall. There's light behind them, but their entire existence, their entire life, all they hear are echoes from people behind them, and all they see are shadows of the light and the things that the light is making shadows on. So their entire existence is shadow, cave, darkness, but they don't know any better because that's just where they were born, and that's what it is like. And so what happens in images and shadows on the wall to them is reality. But then in this allegory, one of the chained up people breaks free from their chains and turns around and the light hits their eyes and it's painful and it's hard and they're tempted to turn back but they end up pressing forward and they walk not just past the light but they walk out of the cave into the sunlight and it's painful and it hurts and it's disorienting and their entire worldview is collapsing because what I thought was real for my whole life is actually not real, it's just shadow, it's just illusion, it's just nothing. But then that person develops compassion and they actually, their eyes adjust, and they go, I need to go back for my fellow prisoners in chains, and they go back down into the cave to try and free the people who are still chained up, but the people who are chained up actually resist the messenger with violence because they are in love with the darkness and what is normal and good, and the status quo for them is good enough. They don't wanna hear about any other possibility. That's Plato's allegory of the cave, and in Plato, the big idea is the philosopher, me, Plato, I am the one who is broken free from the chains. I am the one who's wandered out into the sunlight. And I have come back the philosophical mastermind to free you people from darkness. So the whole idea is you are in chains, you are in darkness, you are trapped, you don't see reality. And the answer, therefore, is listening to philosophers and reading philosophy. It's education. And with that kind of in the background we're talking about John here is this mastermind. At the same time, speaking to and confronting the cultural stories, he talks about John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That John is, in a sense, saying, yes, you are in darkness. Yes, you are in chains. Yes, you love the darkness. Yes, the light is painful. No, education will not save you. No, listening to a a dead philosopher guy will not save you. What ends up needing to happen is not that you, by your own capacity, free yourself from the chains and leave the cave. What needs to happen is the sun, the light, comes into the cave to set the minds free of the captives. That John, the witness, even this word witness is the Greek word marturo, which has to do with the connotation of someone who is killed for what they are pointing people to, the martyr, the witness. That later on in the Christian tradition, those words would become fairly interchangeable because as people bear witness to the light, they are killed. Similar to Plato, that people trying to get people out of darkness would be resisted with violence. So John the baptizer, John the witness, his big idea here is that revelation trumps education. That we like to think, oh, I'm just ignorant, but if I just had more books or if I had more ideas or if I had more thoughts, oh, see those people over there doing evil, they need education. There's a sense in which that's true, but there's a greater sense in which that absolutely falls short, that people are not just ignorant in need of education, they are sinners in need of saviors. That John the Baptist is the blip in this Jesus story, not just because John is forgetting and cramming in this story about the guy, but he's saying that, that myth or that story that Plato told about the person freeing the people from the cave is partially true, and John is here the witness, but the light has come into the world, the light is not out there and we need to go find it. The Christian story is not about people of their own will, of their own heart, of their own desire, assenting by means of education to come to the sense of light. It is about a people who have wandered from God and like it and God comes and gets them. John the Baptist teaches us that revelation, God revealing himself to us, God enlightening our hearts, God helping us see is what we really need we like to think that we can just read our way into the kingdom of God. We like to think that if we can, I mean, you think about our current cultural moment and we are about as educated, we have as much access to information as ever in the history of the world and I would argue that we are less thoughtful and more reactive than we've ever been. You think more education will solve society's issues. We've been trying that and spending and spending and spending and. Education will not save us. Philosophers will not save us. And we as Christians need to be people who recognize that there's a good and meaningful place for education, but revelation, God showing up, the Spirit changing hearts, is the ultimate answer of our hope. John the Baptist died telling that story. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. So I did anyway. We're going to talk about Jesus, that Jesus is inclusive, the true light, that there's a sense in which we have this inclusive light. This is verses 8 and 9, that he gives light to everyone. He was not the light. John the Baptist is not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Even this language of the true light, there are other lights. And it's not these other lights are wholly false. It's just that they're only partially false true i think about it you know we you know my family has a history of eczema my son nine months old has a little bit of eczema and we have this light in his bedroom that his skin looks great under and you take him out into the sun and you're like yeah it's worse than i thought because because there's a a light that's favorable that makes him look better than he actually his skin's better than it actually is and then there's a light that makes it that tells the truth more effectively that makes him look worse That's true for all these different worldviews, thinkers, systems of thinking. And we go, There's a lot of lights out there that partially reveal reality, but no light fully reveals reality except for the light that comes from Jesus and is applied to us by his the Spirit in His Word. So there's a true light. That more fully reveals and fully textures and tells us the hard truth, not just the the, the the light when when it's dim. You know, I always think it's funny how like the romantic lighting is like you dim the lights. Like how insulting. <laughs> I'm gonna make I'm gonna see you less clearly. Oh now it's good. So I just don't get that, you know. But but so the true light, you know, oh, lights all the way back on. Oh, never mind. Mood, I'm out of the mood, you know. No, no mas. The true light, the false light, the true light, which gives light to everyone. And this idea that Jesus gives light to everyone is what we could consider as a shorthand way of talking about what the Reformed tradition, our tradition, has historically called the doctrine of common grace this idea that Jesus, even though everyone is a sinner, he gives light to everyone. This is the sense in which even though we would deserve immediate hell because of our sin, Jesus actually allows people who do not love God to continue to subdue and have dominion and create good and beautiful things here and in this world. Why can you listen to non-Christian music and some of it is just awesome. Why can you get on Facebook that, you know, Zuckerberg created and think this is a pretty impressive system he, he wrote together, even though it may be, you know, obliterating our minds. But why can, why there, there's so many good things that exist in the world that have been created by non-Christians. The answer is why. And the, the easiest answer would be like, well, all people are made in God's image, which is true. All people have an inherent dignity and value But even then, those image bearers are absolute sinners. Every single one of us, without exception, are far from God and love the darkness apart from God's intervention. So how is it that these image bearers still produce good and beautiful things? It is because even though we tend to love darkness, there is light that Jesus gives to everyone. There are a lot of excellent non-Christian thinkers there are a lot of non excellent non-Christian builders of things, makers of things. And I'm not saying we should go around just believing everyone, everything everyone says all the time, but this line of thinking that says, because X person equals non-Christian, we should not engage or listen or use, that's what um, logicians or lawyers will call the genetic fallacy. And it's rampant in our culture, you know. People who lean left say, well, that was a good idea, but because it came from him, it can't be a good idea. Or people who lean right, because it came from her, it can't be a good idea. Or even Christians and non-Christians will bow that out. Well, that person is nice, but did you know they're an evangelical Christian? We can't listen to that. And this genetic fallacy is all out in our culture. And I just want to say, as Christians, we should just not buy into that fallacious way of thinking because Jesus gives light to all. There's one true light, and so all worldviews, all ideologies, all structures all need to be tested through the scriptures, but there are a whole bunch of things like two plus two equals four and ibuprofen that there's no Bible verse for. <laughs> and because God gives light to all, because of the doctrine of common grace, there is a sense in which God is preventing people from becoming as corrupt and evil as they would be all the time. So it's different from saving grace, which saves you from the wrath of your sin, but it is a common grace. It is is that the sun and the rain shine and fall on the just and the unjust alike. Common grace. This creates what I would consider a, a receptive or open ability to interact with people who disagree with us on our core basic doctrine that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So where something comes from does not necessarily mean it's true or it's false. This is the doctrine of common grace. Jesus gives light to everyone. Next point, exclusive rights. This is verses 10 through 13. You know, I, uh, when you think about rights, and you think about being a child of God, um, you know, whose father, whose whose child you are, slash who your parents are, really kind of affects whether that's those rights you inherit are like meaningful or not. Like, for example, you know, I am my father's son, which is something that everyone can say at all times. But I'm I'm my father's son, and he was there's a season, especially like when I was in elementary school, where he was a basketball coach at Chandler High, and. And that season, Chandler High's basketball team was super hyped up and it was really fun. And I remember this feeling of my mom and me and my three younger siblings walking into the house of pain, the Chandler's um, gym, and there's a line and people are paying, you know, five bucks a person to get into this high school basketball game. And it was like, oh, coach's wife, coach's kids, you get in for free. And you just feel like... I'll sign autographs later. You know, like, this, this sense of, like, the privilege of access to space. Uh, with no, I have did nothing to earn that, that reality. But because I'm the son of my father, it's coach's son gets in for free. And then later on, I remember even in high school, there are times where I had friends who played for other, other schools, or even when I was working in high school ministry, that my dad would give me his AIA pass because my name is Seth J. Trout, and his name is J. Trout, and so I would, I don't know if this is allowed or not, um, but I would go to games for free because I had my dad's pass, you know, and I would, you know, so there's privilege of access based on who your father is. And this this reality, of children having access to particular places, but there's another piece that it's, it's children have access to the person himself, that when my dad was my basketball coach, we would play game, you'd play a game, and then after the game, there'd be driving home, and I would get, you know, particular attention about why certain plays were called or why um, certain things unfolded or what I could do better. I would get individualized attention from the coach that other people didn't get just because I was coach's son. Not only that, so so there's privilege of access to spaces, privilege of access to the father himself, but there's also responsibility that comes with being a child. That if coach's kid isn't working hard on the drills... It's contagious, that there's a culture-making responsibility that comes from being the coach's son, that if the coach's son is obstinate, that's a larger problem than if not the coach's son is obstinate, because what's tolerated here extends to there. And so this idea of becoming a child of God has nothing to do with privilege and responsibility privilege of access to places, spaces, and the Christian line of thinking, privilege of access to heaven, the king's court, the throne of grace, privilege of access to God himself. We have special access, privilege of the the responsibility that we have a culture-making responsibility to be salt and light in the world in which there's a lot of people who are not God's children. And this is one of the things I want to just be very careful about here but be very particular about is this reality is that there is in our common vernacular vernacular amongst um, conservative evangelicals I hear all the time this this phrase well we are all God's children speaking of people who are Christians and people who are non-Christians and I understand and empathize with that sentiment the desire to say all people are made in God's image God gives light to everyone everybody has dignity and value but It's not biblically accurate to say that we are all God's children. Verse 12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That we must become children of God through faith and repentance, turning from our sin, trusting in him, allowing Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, to shape our worldview. So this privilege is responsibility, it comes when we are converted, when we turn our hearts, when we trust in Christ, when we believe in his name. And so what that means is the whole world is full of people who Christ has given light. And the world is full of some people who have become children of God. And I just want to be very clear. And It's not just a goal of theological accuracy here. It's not just I want us to language police our, our realities, but I just want to say that we should be careful of telling people that they have peace with God when they don't. We should be careful of telling people you have access to the Father when they don't. And those of you watching online, those of you in this room, I just want to be very clear that you have been given light by Jesus. You are made in the image of God, you're full of dignity, you're full of value. But if you have not turned from your sin in faith and repentance and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have yet to become a child of God. I just want to hear very clearly, please believe in Jesus because you're trusting in something. You're trusting in something to save you from your guilt, your shame, your sense of separation. You're trusting in something that at the end of your life you'll say I lived a good life, I did not live good. There is something that you are clinging to that is saying I have yet to lose my mind into a spiral of nothing because I am. And your choice is either you trust in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins or you trust in some form of self-righteousness. Whether it's a generational legacy, whether it is the money you leave, whether it is the, the amount of hashtags you post, whether it is the place you work, the place you don't work, the relationships you have, the relationships you don't have, it's somehow up to you. But nobody who has not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of their sin is a child of God and therefore has access to heaven. That there are exclusive rights given to those who receive him. I just want to be sober about that. That he gives inclusive light for their exclusive rights. And they're available to anyone. Anyone who wants them. To anyone who receives him, who believes and trusts in his name, his name Jesus means Yeshua, means God saves, who believes that God saves from sin, not anything else, he gave the right to become children of God. That our will to love him is all it takes. But here's the reality in verse 13, it says, who were born, not of, the blood of the, not, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood says it has nothing to do with your ethnic or national makeup. Nobody is born into the privilege of being a child of God. That is not how it works. Doesn't matter who your father is, doesn't matter who your mother is, doesn't matter whether you're raised by your father or raised by your mother, irrelevant as it relates to privilege with the Father. Not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not like two people just had some desires that they had fulfilled and then there was a child. That's not how it works. Rather, there was God set his will on our will. And this is one way to think about repentance, turning to faith in Christ and repentance, is that he heals our will, that the things we loved we no longer love, that the things we didn't love, we begin to love, that it's actually an inflammation of good desires and a deadening of bad desires, that God goes changes our hearts from saying, I love darkness, to we actually begin to say, I love light, to say, I used to be defensive when people brought up sin, but now I'm grateful when they bring up sin, because I have an opportunity to walk closer with Christ. That we think about this idea going back to Plato's cave that we are in darkness, chained up, and that when people come and say, Look, the light, we resist with violence. Until the sun comes into the cave and lightens things up and changes our heart and sets us free and brings us out and sets us walking on the path in which God has established. That it is by the will of God that we are saved. We do not will or educate ourselves out of chains and out of darkness. Rather, the sun comes and gets us. The whole story of the Bible is not one where people by their own self-will decide, you know what, I've been bad, I wanna be good now. It's a story of a people who say, I have been bad and I have enjoyed it and I have not minded it and I will basically stay this way, but then God shakes us awake and causes us to be born again to a living hope and points us to the only one who gives us true light and that is the person of Jesus, the one who moved towards us when we were moving away from him. So God gives inclusive light, which makes us clear thinkers, But there are exclusive rights that require a laying down of the will. They require a surrender. They require saying, not thy will, but, I mean, not my will, but thine. It requires saying, I am no longer the Lord of my life. You are the Lord of my life. And there is a a submission. But it's it's submission in love. It's submission for a better life. It's submission for life with the lights turned all the way on. And I hope we sense that as a Redemption Gateway that we would be a people who recognize and see the goodness and dignity that all people are made in God's image, that God has given light to all, so we're not demonizing and degrading and attacking, but at the same time, there is a a prayerful resilience. that actually produces humility, that I would still be chained up in darkness had Jesus not saved me. That this kind of, the way people talk about it, if you stand before God on the last day and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? And if your flinch is to say, because I, bad place. But if your flinch is to say, because Jesus, now you're kind of thinking biblically. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your patience Thank you for sending the Son. God, you did not owe us deliverance from our chains and our darkness, but yet you set your love on us, you pursued us, you came for us. And God, I do ask that you will help us be people who think well, who are able to acknowledge the role of common grace in our world, and at the same time you'd help us feel a burden that we would seek and desire that people would become children of God. Let us not be content with light, but let us uh, seek to be close with you as our God and as our Savior. And you ask that as we have walked through this book of John, that you'd help us see more clearly. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.